the latter part of the sacred scriptures, which we know of as, the, which we refer to as the New Testament, begins with four tellings of the life of Jesus. His life, his ministry, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Uh, they are four distinct tellings, independent of one another, as we would expect of eyewitnesses, and taken together, they are absolutely consistent with one another, as we would demand of eyewitnesses telling the truth about historical events. The last of those four is John, and John is writing somewhat later, and, and, and he knows that the other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are all in wide circulation, and so he is kind of careful to focus on events and so on that, the, that they don't talk about. He's an eyewitness. He's telling about things he actually lived through. But uh, one of the focuses he gives us, he tells us about three different times when Jesus speaks of being lifted up, of how necessary it was that he be lifted up. Can you, can you remember some of these? <laughs> Let's look at them together, and I'm going to read them for you. I oftentimes, when I'm sitting where you sit and uh, the scripture is being read, I like to just close my eyes and listen because the scriptures were designed to be read aloud and to be listened. So that's fine. But if you want to follow along, John 3 and verse 14. All these are in John, and they rather cover Jesus' ministry. John 3, of course, is very early. This is in the interview with Nicodemus. This is while Jesus is tearing down in Judea before he, uh, John the Baptist is arrested and Jesus heads up to Galilee for those 18 months. So early in his ministry... Speaking to Nicodemus, Jesus says, I just want verse 14 where he says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And it's very, very definite in the Greek, it must. Uh, he must be lifted up. Now go to John chapter 8. And now we jump ahead, and this is the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus is going to die at the Feast of Passover, 33, April 3rd, 33 AD. This is about... Uh, six months earlier, late September, early October, the uh, Feast of Tabernacles and, and Jesus, all of John 7 and 8 and 9 and into chapter 10, describe Jesus here at the Feast of Tabernacles. But it's closer to his death. And uh, by now he has uh, angered uh, the Jewish leadership, the Pharisees in large part. And uh, in this context, they're, they're, they're face on face. They're confronting one another. And uh, the, the Pharisees are insisting that Jesus is a, a, uh, is a liar, that he's not telling the truth, that these are his words but not God's. And in response to that, Jesus says, John 8 and verse 28, very simply, he says, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, that I am that Son of Man, that, that promised Messiah, Daniel chapter 7. You'll know that I am he and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. When you lift me up, then you'll know that I am not speaking of myself uh, on my own, that these are the words of God. Then go to John chapter 12, the last time in the book of John. And this is during the Passover week, during the week we are celebrating. We are celebrating. We are at the uh, culminating happy day of what we call the Passion Week. I always tell people, bless God, it's an eight-day week because it begins with a triumphal entry that we celebrated last week, but it ends on this glorious day when we celebrate the reality that that tomb was found empty and that Jesus showed himself alive. But at any rate, on Tuesday of that week, Tuesday of the Passion Week, John chapter 12 and verse 31, Jesus says, by the way, time out before I read it. Jesus is remembering here an Old Testament passage, and I want it echoing in your ears as we, 
as we read this, because at the very dawn of fallen human history, Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, who had known what it was to walk in the cool of the day with their God, their maker, who had had this perfect, open, blessed fellowship with the God who made them for that fellowship. That's why he made you And you can never know anything of genuine soul satisfaction until that relationship with God is restored so that you might enjoy that fellowship. But the point is, way back there in Genesis chapter 3, Adam had plunged himself into sin. Now, here's my point. God, as soon as man rebelled, God set about to redeem. And so God comes and makes a promise. Now, that promise was not made to Adam and Eve. It was, in point of fact, made to Lucifer. But it was, in fact, uh, I I like to say that Adam and Eve were kind of happy eavesdroppers on that day because God promised to Lucifer, look look Satan right in the eyes and said, as it were, this is not over because I am going to raise up one who will be of the seed of the woman and that one will crush your skull. Now that promise, we call it the Proto-Evangelium. It's the first breath of gospel hope. It has to do with one who would come as a deliverer. Only God could produce him. By the way, Israel was taught later, Psalm 118, that when that one did appear, Psalm 118 is a blessed psalm of messianic inauguration, and they were taught to to, to rejoice when when that promised seed of the woman would appear. And uh, they were taught to sing, and you know this verse, Psalm 118, 24. Can you, can you say it out loud? You can. You just don't know it. I'll start it. You finish it. This is the day which the Lord has made. Now, we, I always tell people, we, we, we apply this, that verse to this day or that day, and help yourself. Maybe that's an application, but that's not what's going on in Psalm 118. What he's talking about, what Psalm 118 is talking about, is the day of Messiah's appearance. And the point is that only God can bring forth that one who can deliver us from the curse of sin. So this is the day, the day of Messiah's appearance, that only God could make, and that's why we'll rejoice. But my point is simply that way back there in Genesis chapter 3, God had made that marvelous promise that he, God, was going to produce this seed of the woman, was going to bring this seed of the woman who would crush the head of the tempter, who would redeem men from the curse of sin and death. Now Jesus says on Tuesday of the, of the Passion Week, look at it in verse, 20, I'm sorry, verse 31, he says, now is the judgment of this world. The ruler of this world will be cast out. What was promised all those centuries and millennia ago is going to happen because the drama of the cross is about to, to, to begin to unfold in just a few days. But then he says this, and now I get to my verse, verse 32. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. So Jesus has said, it is imperative. The Son of Man must be lifted up. When, I, when you lift me up, then you'll know that I'm speaking for God. And I, if I am lifted up, will draw him into myself. Now that phrase, lifted up, who's in the Greek, but it's, 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 it's a fairly ambiguous term, and it might mean several things, but we're really left with no doubt as to what he means, because look at verse 33. Are you there in John 12? Again, I'm going to read the two verses. In verse 32, he said, If I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw peoples to myself. And then it says in verse 33, This he said, signifying by what death he should die. And by what death there means the type, tupos in the Greek, the type of death he would die. So Jesus says it is absolutely imperative that he die by being lifted up from the earth. The reference is to crucifixion. Now, 
we might have expected that Jesus would die by stoning, simply because he came to the Jewish people, he angered the Jewish leadership early on, and the standard means by which Jews executed criminals. Uh, There were others, but the standard one was stoning. And in point of fact, in both John 8 and in John 10, at the Feast of uh, Tabernacles and the Feast of Dedication, in both cases, just weeks before Jesus did die, the Bible says the Jews, time out, John almost always uses the word Jews to refer to the leaders, not to the nation. And so when it says in John 8 and again in John 10, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. That's the picture, that the Jewish leaders were so enraged with him because of his claims. In John 10, it's because he had claimed, I and the Father are one. Now, come back to me. My point is, we might have expected that Jesus would die by stoning. And there were attempts to stone him. But in point of fact, he did die by crucifixion. And let me say two things about that. Number one, I, 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 don't, like to, I don't like to make this the emphasis over much. I think it's a very, very important and necessary part of the story. I think it's sometimes overplayed. But in point of fact, crucifixion is as horribly cruel and inhuman a means of execution as the depraved man mind of man has ever conceived. The Romans had taken a rather standard form of uh, usually public execution and had fine-tuned it to their own ends, and, 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 and they wanted it to be characterized in four ways. Now, I want you to remember this, although I'm going to only give you three right now. See, crucifixion was primarily, and it was put to a lot of different uses, but primarily, as it was statutorily framed, Crucifixion was about putting down sedition, rebellion, insurrection, riot. Uh, not, not just riots, but Rome had this vast empire, circled the Mediterranean from, all the, from India all the way to Britain. And in this corner and that of the Roman Empire, on this day or that, they constantly faced local insurrections, local kings who would, who would try to throw off the Roman yoke and drive out the Roman armies and refuse to pay the Roman taxes and establish themselves as, as independent states. And this was a constant difficulty. And, and, and Rome, as powerful as she was, that was a vast empire. And she could only move her soldiers by foot, sometimes by ship, but most of them, even if, if, if small groups by ship, they had to go by, by foot. And so they needed to find ways to retard the seditious impulse in the hearts of its subject people. That makes sense? They had to find ways. And one of the most important was crucifixion. And to that end, they wanted to be characterized in certain ways. Number one, they wanted it to be cruel. And it was unspeakably cruel. It was deliberately cruel. The victim was always scourged, but he was surgically scourged. Because the second way in which they demanded that crucifixion be carried out, they wanted it to be lingering. So they didn't want him scourged in such a way as he would lose a great deal of blood or that he would, he would be so exhausted that he would expire quickly on the cross. They wanted him to linger on the cross. And normally they would, they would last at least a day and many times into the second day, and there are records of crucified victims even in open defiance of Rome lingering the third day, till the third day. As a matter of fact, to that end, there was an apparatus on the cross to enable you. See, the problem was that on the cross, you couldn't breathe without hoisting yourself up. And I go back to it. 
That's why the scourging. The scourging was designed to open up deep, fresh wounds, expose raw nerves, because on the cross, in order to breathe, you have to push yourself up. And in so doing, with that rough timber behind you, those splinters are going to be thrust into those, into those open wounds, and you're going to cry out in terror and so on. And that's exactly what Rome wanted crucifixion to be. Does that make sense to you? Uh, they wanted it to be uh, 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 cruel. They wanted it to be lingering. By the way, most men died of asphyxiation on the cross. That is, uh, you couldn't sleep you could, if, you, if you fell into a coma of any sort and didn't hoist yourself up you'd die of asphyxiation. You, if you wanted to hasten the death, you would break the leg so he couldn't hoist himself up. So they wanted it to be cruel, they wanted it to be lingering, and they wanted it to be public. And so it was always on a small hill outside a main gate. Now the hill was just high enough that the passers-by could see the poor wretch above the heads of others and so on. And it was always on a, outside of a gate because that's a choke point. That's a bottleneck, and you can't go around. You're going to go into the city, you've got to go through the gate. You might take the kids and, and, and wrap them in the folds of your garment and hold, muffle their ears and try and make your way along. But, but, but get as far to the other side of the road as you can. But there hangs that poor, crucified, seditionist, crying out hour after hour. And, and by the way, they weren't hoisted way up in the air because they were left just low enough that if the family were to desert them, to abandon them, the dogs would begin to nibble at the, the heels and the, uh, the birds would begin to peck at the eyes and so on. So my point is, why do I spend time with that? Again, I think it's important to see that Jesus determined that it was imperative that he die by crucifixion, even though to die by crucifixion was as awful as it could possibly be in terms of physical suffering. Look at John 18, verse 28. This is how this plays itself out. Now, remember the verse we just read in John chapter 12. Jesus said, I, if I am lifted up, will draw all people to myself. And then John says, this spake he concerning the manner, the type, the two paws of death, he would die. Now, this is what happens. And I haven't got time. I'd love to, but I don't have time to walk you through the events. But suffice it to say that this is on Tuesday that we're reading in John 12. On Thursday evening, Jesus is going to gather in an upper room on the western hill of the city of Jerusalem, a palatial home. And there he is going to keep the Passover. In the midst of that Passover, he's going to announce the hand of the betrayers at the table. Judas is going to get up, make an excuse, leave to fetch the Sanhedrinists. Jesus will introduce the Lord's Supper, I believe, and then he will begin to teach. But all of a sudden, he says, arise, let's go out. And so he makes his way, it's late now, across the Cadron Valley, down the side of the Cadron Valley, and over to Gethsemane. Meanwhile, by the way, Judas goes up to the Antonia to fetch the Sanhedrinist, comes back to the house where he had left Jesus, finds it empty. John is explicit, John 18 and verse 2, that Judas knew the place of Gethsemane because they often stayed there. Jesus was not trying to escape, he was trying to buy himself a few precious moments. So now Judas follows him. In the meantime, Jesus has taken the eleven out to Gethsemane, where he has fallen before the Father and three times begged that the cup might pass from him. But then you remember he arises and emerges from the garden and says to Peter, Shall I not drink the cup which my Father has given me? You know, by the way, I don't want to preach on this, but it's so important to understand that during his life on this earth, Jesus had no more spiritual resources than you and I. He was absolutely dependent upon the scriptures, upon prayer, upon time with the Father, on the promises of the Father. He knows 
his road lies hard by your own, as C.H. Spurgeon was wont to say. And, but at any rate, so Jesus, having cast himself on the Father there in the garden, comes out. At that point, he's arrested. He's going to be hauled up to a palatial priestly villa on the western hill where he is going to be uh, interrogated by the Jewish authorities, the Sanhedrin. They have a problem. They can't simply haul him off and stone him because he's way too popular and there'll be a riot and their heads will roll. This is why the Bible says again and again they wanted to kill him, but they could not because they feared the people. So in order to be rid of him, they had to get the Romans involved. But in order to get the Romans involved, they had to have some sort of a charge. Well, Jesus, although he did it very carefully, very circumspectly, nonetheless, Jesus did, in fact, claim to be Messiah. Messiah means king. And so the plot is that if we can take him to the Romans and accuse him of being a, a, a pretender king, there's no room in the Roman Empire for pretender kings. And this is Passover, by the way, and at Passover the Jewish heart is beating hard with thoughts of rebellion, of sedition, of deliverance, because it's remembering Egypt. Remember that? So, so, so the, 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 the Sanhedrinists are thinking if we can get him before the Roman authority, Pilate, and accuse him as a seditionist, if we can get him to openly claim to be the Christ, the Messiah, the King, we can make that stick. And so that's what happened. In the middle of the night, they had badgered him and brought false witnesses, and finally Caiaphas, the high priest, the real villain in this, are you with me in this story, had said to, uh, had said to Jesus, this is a, the Sanhedrin, the middle of the night, and he had said, tell us, are you the Christ, the Son of the living God? That's what Jesus claimed, but he had been so careful about it that they had never been able to catch him in that word. And I think Caiaphas was fully convinced this was a shot in the dark, but it was, he was desperate. But to his unspeakable delight and surprise, Jesus replied, I am. So now, 70 men have heard the Nazarene claim to be Messiah. That's seditious talk to the Romans. So now they haul him off to Pilate. And that story picks up in John 18. Look at it, John 18 and verse 28. So it's Friday morning, very, very early. Actually, not morning at all, uh, about 4.30. So maybe very early morning. And it says, verse 28, that they, that is the Sanhedrinists, led Jesus from Caiaphas, that is the high priest, the Jewish authority, to the praetorium. The praetorium is where the Roman official, Pilate in this case, lives. Uh, the praetorium means his house, his, his domicile. It was early morning, and then dropped down to verse 29. Pilate then, the Roman authority, went out to them and said, what accusation to bring against this man? And they said, if he weren't an evildoer, we wouldn't have delivered him up to him. In other words, they really knew they had nothing on him, and so they said, if we weren't, he weren't a mal, just crucify him for heaven's sakes. Now watch this. Verse 31, Pilate said, no, oh, you take him and judge him according to your law. And then the Jewish leadership again said to him, you know it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Then look at verse 32. This happened, John is saying, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. So what can we conclude? Jesus is explicit three times. It was imperative that he die, not by stoning, but by crucifixion. Then the story unfolds in such a way as to make us understand that Jesus rather carefully handled himself in such a way that his enemies would be forced to bring him to the Romans, and thus he would die. That's what it's saying there. It would be fulfilled what he said about how he must die. Now, this is the question I'd like to deliberate in the, in the few minutes we've got left, and I want you to stay with me.
the Bible is quite explicit that it was imperative. And I think it's quite explicit about how Jesus contrived to make sure that he would, in fact, die by crucifixion. The Bible is less explicit as to precisely why it was so important that he die by crucifixion rather than by stoning. I want to suggest three reasons. I think there are three, and I think we can derive these rather clearly from the story, but I think there are at least these three reasons why it was terribly important that Jesus die by crucifixion. Now again, understand, stoning, how much do you know about stoning? The way they would stone normally is they would bind a man, they would find a small hill or cliff, they'd toss him to the bottom of that cliff many times the and the idea of slinging him down there was that he would be, in many cases, knocked unconscious, so he wouldn't squirm and he wouldn't so on. But uh, if, if not that, one of the first blows would render him unconscious, and then he would be continued to be pelted with stones until life was gone. But the fact is that that stoning was, well, it was very different from, obviously, crucifixion. And I think what Jesus is saying is that it was imperative that he die, not by stoning, but by crucifixion. Why? Well, reason number one is this, that the drama of the crucifixion makes absolutely clear the real reason why Jesus was executed. Now, I think this is huge, but <laughs> I, I, I often hear it said, and I think somewhat carelessly, witlessly, but, but it's wrong, and I, I hear people say, good people say, preachers say, teachers say, that Jesus died as a seditionist at the hands of the Romans. He did not die as a seditionist. And I think it's important because sedition is, in fact, Romans 13, a crime. Jesus is going to go to the cross as a sinless son of God. But more than that, the Bible is absolutely clear that he didn't die as a seditionist. You know what I mean by as a rebel, as, a, as one who is plotting insurrection against Rome to throw off the Roman yoke. He didn't die as a seditionist. Let me give you three reasons, three arguments to that end. Number one, Five different times, Pilate announces his innocence. Now, that's important. Pilate was the duly constituted, fully informed judge. He was the only one who could pass sentence on this man, and he does pass sentence. He does it five different times. He says, I find no fault in this man. The record simply could not be more clear, and it could hardly be more resonant, that is, we hear it again and again, than, than it is. All right, so number one, he wasn't a seditious because Pilate announced that he was not a seditious. Number two is the titulus. Now, the titulus is that banner that, that, that the Roman authorities would always put above the cross. And it was a wooden banner that they would scrawl on there, they would, they would paint on there, the specific crime for which this man was being executed. Again, there is pedagogical interest in this. You see what I'm saying? They're trying, everybody who witnesses this boy, they want to know, this, he, this is why he's being crucified, and if you do the same thing, that's where you'll be next, okay? So there was always the titulus, that, that, the, and, and you remember Pilate wrote on that banner, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. He wrote it in three languages in order that nobody would miss it. Now, this, the fascinating thing to me is that the leaders, the, the Jewish leaders who were angry with Jesus and who had hounded him to his death, came to Pilate and they said, no, 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 don't write Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews, write Jesus of Nazareth, he said he was king of the Jews. Now, do you hear what they're saying? Write he's a seditionist. Write that he, he's being executed because he claimed to be king of the Jews. And it is fascinating, by the way. Pilate's kind of a hero of mine. I, I really have high regard for Pilate, but that's another story. 
But, uh, and I think, I think I may meet him in the next life. I really do. But uh, Pilate handles himself with a reserve of character in this whole episode that nobody anticipated he had. But that's another story. My point is, I find it so fascinating that Pilate dug in his heels, as it were, and he said, what I have written, I have written. And even there, he refused for even the, to, to, to represent Jesus as a seditionist. That's important. And then the third argument against the idea that he was a seditionist, that he was crucified, is the simple fact that his body was turned over to Joseph and Nicodemus. Part of the protocol, and it was very, very official, it was set in stone, that a man who was crucified as a seditionist was not to be afforded a decent human burial. His body was to be tossed on the heap, and the, and, and the animals were to, to pick at it for several days, and then the bones were to lay there, because that was ongoing mute testimony to what happens to you if you mess with Rome. Do you see that? So the fact that, now, why is that important? Well, go to John 19. It is so very important to me to understand that, in point of fact, after Pilate had again and again, at least four times by now, pronounced Jesus innocent, when he on this occasion, and, and again, this is, again, it, it, it's, it's, it's now it's probably 5.30, 5.45 in the morning, Jesus has been shuttered about and so on, and now he's been brought to Pilate, and Pilate has had him scourged in the hopes he could satiate the bloodthirstiness of, the, of Jesus' enemies, and, and, and then uh, he had brought him out, Pilate had brought Jesus out and put a cheap robe on him and stood him before the crowd and said, behold the man, as if to say, look at the man. Are you kidding me? This is a threat to Rome. This man has to die because Rome is somehow jeopardized. But none of it sufficed. And so finally in verse 6, notice it, when the chief priests, and the, it's in verse 5, he says, behold the man, but in response, the, uh, the authorities cry out there in verse 6, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate once again said, you take him, you crucify him, for I find no fault in him. And by now the Jews are desperate. And it seems that no matter what they insist, Pilate's not going to do it. And so they sit, look at verse 7. Oh, this is such a pivotal verse. Verse 7, therefore, I'm sorry, the Jews, and again, this is the leadership, the Jewish leadership, the Sanhedrinists, answered him. And this is what they said. We have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. Folks, Jesus went to the cross because he called himself, because he claimed to be the Son of God. And let me tell you something. That, the claim to be God, for a man to claim to be God, is as awful a blasphemy as a man could utter, and it is fully worthy of death by execution, unless it happens to be the truth. And you know what? It had never, ever been the truth before. You'll never understand. I tell you, this whole story of the passion will not get a hold of you like it should until you allow to come to grips, uh, yourself to come to grips with the unspeakable difficulty of Jesus' claims concerning himself. And, and, and he claimed to be God coming to flesh, and he claimed that in a Jewish, to a Jewish audience. You know, the Jews, all of their history, the Jewish people were surrounded by pagan Peoples. All of those pagan peoples had their own god sets, their own pantheons. And you know, their gods lived on a big hill outside of town and they warred with one another and they lusted after one another and so on. But they were nothing more than men blown big. That's all those gods. They were kind of super, super men. 
the Jews, God, Yahweh, the God of the Bible, reveals himself as the transcendent God, the God who is the maker. He's not part of this created order. So there was hardly anything more, there was nothing more certain to a Jewish mind than this. Our God, Yahweh, is not a man. And yet here was this man claiming to be God. Now we've had a couple of thousand years to get used to it. And it is absolutely true. And we are celebrating in a special way the remarkable evidence that God gave that it is true. But I'm telling you something. I think this is what Jesus meant when he said on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Paul says, let's look at it real quickly. Go to Acts chapter 3. It's Peter in Acts. Acts chapter 3 and verse 17. Peter in his sermon after healing the the lame man. But he says in verse 17, he's preaching to the Jewish leaders who have arrested him. And, or who are about to arrest him, I should say. But he says in verse 17, he says, Yet now, brethren, I know you did it in ignorance, as also did your rulers. And I'll go over to 1 Corinthians 2.8, and I'll read it to you if you want to go there with me, help yourself. But Paul says exactly the same thing in 1 Corinthians 2. And again, this emphasis on if you had known, 1 Corinthians 2, he says, uh, verse 8, which none of the rulers, he's talking about Jesus as the Son of God, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. Now the point is, Jesus made, you know what, all throughout his ministry, I kind of mentioned this before, but all throughout his ministry, Jesus basically made two claims concerning himself. To accept Jesus savingly is to bow the knee to these two claims. He claimed to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. Those are unspeakably difficult claims. When he claimed to be the Christ, that, I mentioned this earlier, but the concept of the Christ, that is the, the anointed one who would, the word, by the time you get to the New Testament, the word Christ or Messiah, it's the same word, Hebrew is Mashiach, uh, Greek is Christos. By the time you get to the New Testament, that's the word that kind of gathers up all of the Old Testament hope about this coming deliverer. And, of course, it finds it's, 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 it's seminally revealed. That is, it's, the first time it's revealed is in Genesis 3. And it has to do with this, this deliverance from sin and death. So Jesus, on the one hand, claimed to be the Christ, the deliverer. He also claimed to be God come in the flesh. Those are remarkably audacious claims. But let me just come back to my point. My point is, because Jesus died by crucifixion, you had this whole trial. And in the course of that trial, Jesus was demonstrated again and again not to be a seditionist, and he was not sent to the cross as a, cross as a seditionist, but rather he was crucified because he claimed to be the Son of God. All right, a second reason. Now, my first reason is I think it's terribly important that by reason of the fact that he was lifted up, the drama that unfolded made very, very clear why it was he went to the cross. But secondly, I think it's terribly important because that drama of the crucifixion is, is, is it, it demonstrates the true character of the death Jesus died. Now, folks, I want to park on this for just a second. Uh, when we think of death, we think immediately and almost exclusively of physical death. And physical death is, 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 is a, it's a very real issue. And it haunts every one of us to one degree or another. But I would submit to you that biblically, physical death is a grand after. In the mind of God, physical death is a grand afterthought. You know how hard it is for God to fix physical death? 
Lazarus, come out here. It's over. But on the other hand, what is really at stake in the Bible when it speaks of death in most of the case is what we might call spiritual death, and it is that alienation. I talked about it before. Adam was told, don't eat of that tree, because in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So he eats it. And 938 years later, he dies, right? No, 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 no. 938 years. The, the, the fruits of that were born, and he, he died physically. But the fact is that the moment he ate it, he died. He had known what it was to walk in the cool of the day with the God who made him, and now he finds himself disfellowshipped, from, alienated from that God, uh, angry with that God. That's what it is to be lost. Does that make sense to you? So my point is, when Jesus, you know, Bring that with you, because one of the really important and one of the, in, in the minds of some, though I confess, not in my mind, but in the minds of some, one of the very disconcerting elements of the record of the, of the passion is this, that as the cross drew near, it more and more filled Jesus with terror. He was horrified by the prospect of the cross. And, and, and let me say, I, mean, I said that a little wrong. It wasn't the physical suffering. It was the prospect of becoming sin for you and for me that terrified Jesus because he understood what that involved, I think. And you know, I always think that if you really want to come to grips with Golgotha, you've got to start with Gethsemane. So let me take you there very, very briefly. And before we go to Gethsemane, I always like to set it off against that event in John chapter 12. Now, I'm not going to take you there. I mean, you can look if you wish. But in John chapter 12, on, the, on Tuesday of the Passion Week, uh, Jesus began, it was, it was there in the Temple Mount, huge crowds, and he was teaching and, and besting his enemies and open debate and so on. But a group came and asked him about, uh, wanted to see him, and he began to speak to them about dying. Unless a grain of wheat fall on the ground and die, it can't for, bring forth fruit. And as he contemplates dying, his own death, all of a sudden, in John 12 and verse... Uh, oh, I'm going to go there here, for heaven's sakes. I don't want to get it wrong. Verse uh, 27. Now, again, it's such a strange scene. Because it's an open... I mean, Jesus is teaching, and, th- and all of a sudden, Jesus stops. And he says... I, I, I always use this illustration. I don't know if it works. But it seems to me almost like a Shakespearean soliloquy. And don't ask me anything about Shakespeare, but I do know what a soliloquy is. Where, where the actor kind of steps to the front of the stage and steps away from what's going on and looks to the heavens and so on. That's what happens here. All of a sudden, Jesus says, my soul is troubled. Now, this is on Tuesday. And he says, what shall I pray? Shall I pray, deliver me from this hour? And then he, he, he's able, he says, no, I can't pray that. He says, for this purpose, I came to this hour. So he simply prays, Father, glorify yourself. And by the way, this is a scene of such poignant intimacy that the father in heaven breaks protocol and speaks aloud and gives jesus a promise i have glorified myself and i will glorify myself again and that's the promise that jesus takes to the cross now my point is simply on tuesday as jesus contemplates death he is so gripped that he stops and he says what shall i pray shall i pray deliver me from this hour no i can't pray that Folks, does it, is it compelling to you that the prayer that Jesus refused to pray on Tuesday afternoon, he prays three times on Thursday night. Three times he casts himself on the ground. 
And he begs the Father, if there be any way, let this cup pass from me. And the Bible says, by the way, he never stopped there. Every time he went on to say, nonetheless, not my will, but thine be done. But Luke tells us that on that day, there in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Father sent angels to attend to Jesus. Now listen, there's only one other time when the Father dispatches angels. That's at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, where he is tempted of the devil, but the Father sends angels because Jesus is so, is so crippled by a 40-day fast. What do you look like at the end of a 40-day fast? And Jesus would never use miracle-working power on his own behalf. He came to live your life in front of you, and you can't do that. And so Jesus might have healed somebody else, but he wouldn't. And so the Father, I'm talking about the temptation now, Luke 4, Matthew 4, Mark, uh, Mark 1. At that temptation, after those 40 days of fasting, because Jesus was alone and helpless and about to, to die, the Father sent angels. And I think those angels attended to Jesus like you and I would have. Now my point is, here in the Garden of Gethsemane, not by reason of a 40-day fast, but by reason of Jesus' contemplation of what he is about to endure for you and for me, the Father sends... I don't know what those angels did. I, I, I picture them as perhaps just helping Jesus off the ground. He is cripplingly terrorized by what he is about to endure. You know, it's quite easy, especially given the technology we have today, to reduce physical suffering and calamity and so on to, to, to film, for instance. It's not so easy to do with spiritual suffering. And that's why I say, you want to come to grips with Golgotha, start with Gethsemane. But Jesus does, with angelic help, stagger out of the garden and says, I'm going to drink the cup my Father has given me. And by Friday morning, he is hanging on a cross. As he hangs on the cross for those six hours, you remember he speaks seven times after three of those words, as we call them. About noon, the Father draws a pail of darkness. It's not, not pitch dark. God wants you to see this. But it is, in fact, the most awful scene in all of human history. And so God just draws a pail of supernatural grayness. And for three hours, Jesus hangs there. He's silent. At the end of those three hours... He cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's God's way of giving us some little insight into the unspeakable horror. You know, you and I believe in a triune God. I don't understand that. I'm not bothered by the fact there is that about God, which I can't fully understand, but the Bible makes clear that there are these three persons who exist in one Godhead. Well, whatever that means, it certainly teaches us that there is between the persons of the Godhead an infinite oneness and love and communion that we can only imagine. And whatever that, that infinite oneness is, there on the cross, Jesus, the Son, was judicially disfellowshipped by God the Father. I believe it broke the heart of God the Father every bit as much as God the Son. You think about this, folks. And I don't want to excite unhappy memories, but is this fair to ask? Think about the times in your life when you knew the greatest despair, the greatest heartache, that it seemed almost unbearable. Did it have anything to do with, was it, was it physical? Was it financial? Or was it relational? I'm willing to bet. It was, a, it was a relationship that you cherished that had gone, somehow had broken your heart. Well, the Father 
disfellowship judicially. It wasn't, wasn't, the, 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 the Trinity wasn't abandoned or anything like that, but in some ultimately inscrutable sense, the Father disfellowshipped the Son. And the Son cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And, we, and by the way, after that, very quickly, you remember after he had gathered himself, as a matter of fact, the next thing he says on the cross is, seems a little bit strange, but I think what John 19 is telling us is that the, the experience of crucifixion was so physically demanding, so physically draining and innervating. All the moisture had been sapped from his body, all the strength, and Jesus was so weak he could hardly speak, and his, bo- his, his, his throat was so swollen he could hardly speak. And yet he had something to say that he desperately wanted to say, and he had paid an awful price to earn the right to say it. And so you remember he croaked out, and I think probably in a voice that only those at the immediate foot of the cross could hear, Jesus gathered his, 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 his strength and he said, I thirst. And a soldier takes a, a sponge and soaks it in cheap wine and holds it up, and I picture Jesus taking that wine and taking a moment, trying to get some life back into his into his throat and his voice box and take some of the swelling out of his tongue so he can speak because he has something to say. And he desperately wants to say it. And all the moral universe longed to hear him say it. When he gathered himself, he hung there and he cried out, It is finished. It's done. I can never walk past that. That always takes my breath away. And you see, if it weren't for the fact that Jesus was lifted up to die, we'd have not had that scene. We'd have not understood that what was going on there was that Jesus, that which had so filled him with terror, Jesus was being judicially disfellowshipped by the Father. All because he had taken upon himself my sin and your sin. One of the, one of the point, we're done. I'm saying I think it's important that Jesus be crucified by being lifted up, first of all, because we understand why he died, because he claimed to be the Son of God. And secondly, because we're given this remarkable insight into the character of the death he was dying. He was dying. He was being abandoned by the Father for our sake. And and the work that he did there was availed to finish the work. One other thing with this we're done very quickly, and that is the drama of the crucifixion demonstrates beyond any rational doubt the truth of Jesus' claims concerning himself. Listen, watch this. I said to you before, Rome wanted crucifixion always to be characterized in four ways. It had to be cruel, had to be lingering, had to be public, but there was one other requirement. They were very serious about this. It had to be absolutely, undeniably, publicly certifiable. That is, the man had to die on the cross. The reason is because Rome was trying to put down sedition. The last thing they wanted was the rumor to get started that somehow this wretch had survived this and so the seditionists could go on. And so it was an absolutely established protocol that the man had to die on the cross, that there had to be physical evidence of his death, thus the, the, the sword in the side and so on, the water and the blood, and, and I've read where if a man were taken down off the cross inadvertently, thinking that they thought he was dead, but they'd take him down, and then they noticed just the last puff of breath, just a little tiny hint of life on the ground. Then he died in the ground. Every soldier assigned to that detail was immediately put on a cross. And the reason was because Rome was absolutely desperate for everybody to know the sedition is over. Now, do you see it, what that means? Whether or not you were on that hillside that day, whether or not you saw the, the sword thrust in and the blood and the, and the water come out, if you anywhere in that empire 
heard that there was this poor wretch Jesus who was placed on a Roman cross, you knew he didn't come down till he was dead. You know what? Stoning can be botched. Think about it. Acts 14, Paul says, they stoned Paul and he got up and went into the city. And we're saying, what in the world's going on there? They did bad aim or what's going on there? We don't know. We don't know. I'm telling you, crucifixion could not be botched. Now, look at Romans 2 and verse 4. With this, we're done. Romans 2 and verse 4. Uh, I, I don't mean that. I mean Romans 1 and verse 4. Folks, how does God prove true a man's claim to be a divine messenger? Miracle. What's the greatest miracle of all human history? Jesus coming alive under his own power from the dead after dying on a Roman cross and languishing three days in the tomb. Why was Jesus crucified? John 19, verse 7. Because he claimed to be the Son of God. Romans 1, verse 4. Paul says that he was declared, and I love the word Paul uses here. It's the word horizo. It's our word horizon. It really has that picture. It's to spread across the horizon. It's to emblazon the message across the sky in such a way that nobody can miss it. He was declared, he was horizoned, what? To be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. We celebrate on this day in a special way that empty tomb. Every day of our Christian lives, we celebrate the reality that our Savior is risen. Because he has come back from the grave, we have confidence. He has won the victory over the grave. But way beyond that, I believe, the reason it is so precious to us to realize that Jesus came back from the dead is that is the Father's testimony. The resurrection proves beyond any possible doubt that Jesus is everything he claimed he was, as audacious as those claims are. He was everything he claimed he was, and he can do everything he claimed he had come to do. He claimed, he claimed that he was the Christ, that he had come to restore that broken fellowship. In order to make that possible for you and me, he had to know what it was to be disfellowshipped by the Father. He understands that. But now he is able to work in you a right relationship with the Father. We're going to have a word of prayer, and then we'll be done. If you don't know what that victory is, we implore you, come and talk to us. There is a relationship which God longs to have with you. It's been severed by sin. It can be, it can be restored through the finished work of Jesus Christ if you simply learn to trust in it. Come and talk to us. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for your love and goodness to us. Thank you for the gift of your Son. We are surrounded every day of our lives by so many testimonies, so many evidences of what a good and giving and loving God you are. But above all those is this, that you so loved us that you gave us your Son. We praise you for it. We approach you only in his name. And we rejoice over the salvation which ours because of that which you have wrought through him. Thank you for it in his name. Amen.